How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about going local in an age of globalization. After a couple of decades of worldwide economic integration, there's a percolating interest in reviving regional economies. First came slow food and regional food, and then companies started touting products made near where they are sold. Now there's slow money and other efforts to direct investment capital into regional businesses rather than markets and companies far away. Underlying these efforts is increasing awareness about the cost and vulnerability of long supply chains that are reliant on fossil fuels. Another factor is interest in building regional resilience in anticipation of extreme weather events and disruptions driven by a destabilized climate. Don't worry, this is not going to be a downer, a bummer. I promise we're going to have some hope and optimism and good stories here uh, this afternoon. For the next hour, we'll discuss going local with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And joining us, we're pleased to welcome three guests involved in building resilient and innovative uh, local economies. Dan Rosen is founder and CEO of Solar Mosaic, a company based in Oakland. You'll hear more about. Michael Schumann is author of Local Dollars, Local Sense, and has written other books, including a book called Going Local. Thanks for letting us rip off the title of your book for today. Uh, and Andrew Swallow is founder of Mixed Greens, one of my favorite restaurants, a restaurant group in San Francisco, and author of Mixed Salads, a chef's bold creations. Please welcome them to Climate One today. Andrew Rosen, let's begin with you. You've been involved in climate since you were 14. Give us a brief thumbnail of your story, uh, how energy activism led you to become a business entrepreneur. Yeah, thanks. It's it's really cool cool to be here, first of all. Thanks for the, the invitation. And uh, to share the stage with you guys and just listen to his story and, and your story was really inspiring before we came on stage. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, Energy and climate, for me, when I first started coming to consciousness around those issues, really, I just started feeling that they are such defining issues, if not the defining issue of our generation. And back in high school, my reaction was, let's try to get solar panels on, on the roof of the high school. Let's, let's, let's get our, our, our hands, you know, roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. Let's, let's try to do something and, you know, that was sort of the, the hint back then was the fundra- fundraising for the solar panels was one of the biggest issues. Like, how is the school going to afford putting solar on, on the high school? And we'll get back to that later when we talk about solar mosaic. But um, later on, that path took me to um, work when I was working in the Southwest with the Black Mesa Water Coalition and the issues related to coal mining on Black Mesa and the coal-fired power plant of Mojave Generating Station. Um, working on the Navajo and Hopi Reservation um, in northern Arizona. And um, just seeing the tremendous failure of our last, of, of the fossil fuel energy economy, where, you know, $100 billion of coal wealth is extracted from the Navajo and Hopi tribes, and yet they're still to this day, and this is in the United States, this is in northern Arizona, there's still 18,000 homes in the Navajo and Hopi reservations without running water or electricity, seeing these transmission lines go over homes without running water or electricity next to North America's largest coal, coal mine. Um, and, you know, they were using the coal mine and the water from the reservation to transport coal to power the Mojave Generating Station. And so it was very tied up in the western grid in Los Angeles and Phoenix and the neon signs of, of Las Vegas. And so that kind of started the, the seed for Solar Mosaic for me, which was, you know, a long time ago. This is already 10 years ago when I was exposed to this issue. Was there must be a way for us to invest and profit and prosper from the transition that we need to make to clean energy. And there must be a way for communities to be a part of that uplifting and that development as opposed to being left behind and, and made poor. Um, so many of the places that are energy rich in the world are so energy, are so poor. Um, economically in terms of so many other other indicators. 
Um, it shouldn't be so. It should, it, it, it should be possible for those communities to be a part of the wealth that is created from the resources. And solar is a game changer because it's ubiquitous. It's completely democratic. It shines everywhere. So I think there, we see Solar Mosaic as this huge opportunity for people to prosper. Our, 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 our mission is shared prosper, prosperity through clean energy, for people to prosper through this transition that is inevitable, but also that needs to happen. Interesting, and we'll get into a little bit more later about Solar Mosaic and how it's funded and what yeah. it's trying to do. Uh, Dan, let's let's hear from. I'm um, no, sorry, uh, Andrew. Let's let's hear from you about mixed mixed greens. Sure. And you started a company in yeah. San Francisco, and then you had an experience. Let's briefly yep. tell us what that. So uh, about six years ago, I started a uh, restaurant concept called Mixed Greens with my brother and my sister. Um, and the whole idea behind mixed greens was to 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 build upon what is a local product. Um, I spent my entire young life working in uh, the restaurant industry, and I got tired of seeing that, you know, there's only uh, white tablecloths serving all this high-quality local food, and I decided instead of opening a high-profile restaurant to kind of change the fast food industry. So what we did is the mission was to set out to use local products um, and to use the the idea and the the high talented individuals to to produce this food um, in this environment. So uh, it's it's been a lot been very successful for um, a lot of people, um, and we've been very happy with it. But you sold the company yep. to a multinational interest, and then yep. I won't. Yeah. And then so what happened? it's it's been interesting. So we we basically started with the idea that we were going to roll this concept across the country. Um, and to, to try to, you know, compete with, you know, the McDonald's of the world, but actually serving natural and organic food. And so through the process, um, we went down the road of talking to private equity firms and to venture capital and also to, to angels about helping fund the project. And so over the course of about three years, we built three restaurants and, we came to a point where we needed to get funding to, to do what we set out to do was to roll this nationally. And it was very difficult to find funding for our company. And uh, we turned down a couple term sheets from some private equity firms that I didn't feel were the right fit. And then we were approached by a Swiss company um, that actually we sold the company to them be, with the intentions to grow it, and we would be funded. And so uh, it was a very interesting uh, experience, to say the least. Um, they, they basically sold us something, and they did something else. And it uh, made us actually resign from the company. And uh, they messed it up so bad, um, they didn't kind of know what to do with the concept. And so two months ago, I got it back. So it was quite an interesting story to, to go through of, you know, when you're getting funded from one of the largest companies in the world, which was Nestle, and they just kind of decided that, you know, they wanted to give it back to the founders because they believed that we knew what we could do with the concept. And so Dave and I reacquired the, uh, the assets of Mixed Greens two months ago, and now we are going to go do what we said we were going to do. So we're pretty excited about the, that. So. Michael Schumann, we just heard from Dan and Andrew, two stories about entrepreneurs, access to capital, trying to grow a business, perhaps some social change. How does that fit into the work you've done in going local? And let's put, put the, this, these examples in a broader context for us. Right. Well, I, I think that um, what, they, what they demonstrate is that good concepts with local entrepreneurs only can find money from high-flyer, venture capitalists, hedge funds, big banks, and we need to change this. And one way of thinking about this is that 50% of our economy is local small business. Uh, and if we had efficient capital markets, roughly 50% of our long-term savings would go to local small business. And if you look at those savings now, they are stocks, bonds, mutual funds, pension funds, insurance funds, they total about $30 trillion. So in theory, $15 trillion of that 
belongs in local small business. And none of that is in local small business right now. And so what I'm very interested in is sort of an emerging set of innovations around the country that are expanding the range of options that entrepreneurs like this can access. Um, I mean, among those innovations are, you know, specialized bank CD products, creative use of co-ops, local stocks, local stock markets, local investment funds. Um, people are thinking about how to design local mutual funds. And I really think that in the next couple of years, the investment world is going to look fundamentally different. Dan, do you, want to, do you think that's true? Can you see – we should maybe talk a little bit also about the funding model for Sol Mosaic, which is partly an example of what Michael is talking about. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And it's it just so – you know, on the other side of it, too, it's just also not working for so many uh, consumer investors, I would say. You know, if you look at the options for most people in the country who are non-accredited investors, and that's a, a very um, important term um, – most retail, most people are non-accredited investors, and the options facing them. Wait, are, let's are, clarify. It means you have to have a million dollars in investable <clears> assets <throat> outside your home. Is that exactly. Right? Or that, an income of two hundred thousand or above. But it's basically the top one or two percent of the of the population okay. are accredited. And they they have more options than the rest of us. Okay, sorry, Dan. Yeah, and so Solar Mosaic's model is to open up solar projects, rooftop solar power plants, to allow for people to invest in them, make loans to solar projects, and earn a return. Um, it's a very complex um, problem to solve because of the regulatory issues and how they're structured in this country. We've been spending the past year and a half working with some of the most incredible lawyers you know, in the world on figuring out the, this model that would enable for everyday people to invest in solar projects and earn a return. And, you know, just looking at it, we started it with that premise of, you know, helping people to invest in these local projects and local asset ownership and things like that. But once you really get into the looking at the financial system, you just see that uh, I think so many people crave tangible investments, things that they see where their money is going. They want to see transparency the user experience is horrible. You know, if you any industry that has so many layers between the the user and where it goes, you can assume that in the age of the internet, that that industry is going to be turned upside down. It happened to the music industry. It happened to all the co various content industries. I mean, YouTube and Twitter, and with my iPhone in my pocket, people became media publishing houses. People became the, these clearing houses for information. And you know, if you if you look at that model of, of a newspaper, you're cutting down trees, you're, you're hiring people to make content, you're then taking it and putting it in a car and driving it to someone's door and then throwing it on their doorstep. You know, in the age of Twitter and the internet, you think that person, whoever, whoever thought of that business idea, you think that person is crazy. That's the whole newspaper industry. The same thing for banking and private equity and financial markets. There's just for a brick-and-mortar branch um, bank that started, you know, in the last couple hundred years and really the last hundred years and how much they've changed in the past 30 years, there's so many layers between a person and where their money actually goes that it's, it's astounding. By the time that you actually get your return, you're getting derivatives of derivatives of derivatives from different intermediaries. And I think that in the age of crowdfunding or in the age of um, the ability to connect people directly with those things, with with their own personal money to the asset, there really shouldn't be that many layers between the person. They should be able to invest locally in local entrepreneurs in a local solar solar project and, and whatever they want, but there shouldn't be this many layers between them. So I think that from a lot of different angles, not just from the entrepreneur angle, but also from um, the investment side, we can offer a better investment experience through kind of disintermediating those those layers and giving people this direct connection to their capital. So what are the obstacles? Is it government regulation? Is it the big businesses are trying to keep the little guys out? Do uh, they have influence with the government? Why is this so hard? Well, I think, th I think there are both institutional obstacles and legal obstacles. But I, will, I would just finger for the moment uh, the legal obstacles because – 
back during the Great Depression, we created what you might regard as investment apartheid. And so we touched on it a few minutes ago. So we have this tiny universe called accredited investors who are permitted to invest in anything, anywhere, anytime, and a huge universe of unaccredited investors who basically, in order to put even one dollar into these fine businesses we've heard about today, would require legal documents um, from lawyers, private placement memorandums, if it's just a small number of unaccredited investors, public offerings, if it's a large number, that could cost 50, 100,000, even more. And so no one wants to do it. So it's the Lawyer Full Employment Act that yes. is part of it, yeah. And, and, and what has been remarkable is that over the, you know, the last year or two, a consensus, frankly, of Tea Party Republicans and Occupy Wall Street Democrats has said, this is insane, mm. that we need to fundamentally revise our securities laws to uh, facilitate more small investors putting money in small business. And there's some recently some legislation has been passed that would open the door to crowdfunding and, and sorts of things as part of the jobs bill that passed this spring? Yes. There, there, there is a game changer that has happened. And what we will see is that small stock issues, which used to be kind of funky and boutique are going to be much more common. And by small stock, I mean intrastate offerings where you have to be a resident, say, of the state of California to buy stock that's issued by these companies. But we'll see a lot of these kinds of issues come out because up to, and I think the amount of money we're talking about now, if you earn less than $100,000, you could put up to $2,000 of equity investment into these small businesses without any legal mishigas. And that is a huge shift. Andrew Swallow, does this sound appealing as someone who's been frustrated finding capital in the past, these sorts well, of things? I, I don't know if it's frustration. It, it's just, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I was telling these gentlemen earlier, when you try to raise capital for a restaurant, everyone kind of touts their nose and kind of is like, oh, restaurants always fail. You know, the, the, the percentage of restaurants that actually fail or actually survive is probably one to ten. And so everybody has a friend that's always invested in a restaurant, and you always hear these horrible stories. So it's, you know, it's been very difficult for us to raise capital for mixed greens. And uh, in the interim, I never thought I would ever be in mixed greens again. So I spent the last three years creating a new concept called Splitbread that is going to launch in San Francisco in July. And so my business partner, David Silver, and I wrote a business plan, and we went to the banks, we went to private equity, we went to VC, and said, this is our plan, this is what we're trying to do. And we've done this before. We were successful. We sold it. Our multiples were of a, you know, a startup, uh, internet startup, and they still said no. And so it was very difficult for us because we have this product you know, mixed greens is is very popular in San Francisco, and people really love what we've, we what we do, and they all are very aware of it. Some of the VCs and private equity guys come to the restaurants every day and have lunch, but yet they don't want to take a risk yeah. on guys that are proven that have actually sold a restaurant concept in the past and have a really great idea for another one. So, you know, Dave and I would bang our heads over, going, "Okay, how are we going to do this? Are we going to?" Go to the banks, which the banks will be like, well, you don't have a track record, you know, for your new company, so we're not going to loan you any money. Um, and so we just kind of looked at each other going, all right, the best way to do this, again, is going to go through angel investment. Mm -hmm. And so we funded Split Red um, through angel investment again because there really wasn't a network for us to really dive into to go and get funding. So in this process, I looked at my partner, Dave, and I said, you know, if we can build this concept, grow to a point, I want to start a restaurant fund so that we can actually at some point help young entrepreneurs in the restaurant industry or product, you know, any kind of food product get started and get funded. Because it, for us, you know, I've gone down this path now for six years and selling one company to a pretty large venture firm or private equity firm in Switzerland still wasn't 
good enough for me to get capital. And you look at all the internet companies that are in the Bay Area every day and all these VCs investing in them, but they, because they would rather take a, a high risk and get, you know, a payoff of one in ten than take a, a bit of a lower risk and then maybe get a five X return on their money. So it's been, it's been interesting, but I think that through the process and time, like you gentlemen said, that, you know, it's all going to change. And I think that people are actually wanting to invest. I mean, we looked at, you know, talking to the, the Business Times and the San Francisco Chronicle about, you know, we were thinking about talking to them and saying, hey, we're the founders of Mixed Greens. This is our community. You guys have supported us. We supported the local agriculture and you guys and fed you. Do you guys want to support us on our next journey? And put, you know, an ad out in the paper kind of saying, hey, this is the block of investment. Who's in? You know, but then I was very scared of doing that because I didn't know how many people would come knocking at our door and I didn't want that many investors. So it's um, also illegal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but, oh, details. Sure, Dan. Yeah. And I, I think what, what you're saying is actually just to kind of, there's the other side of this from the regulator's perspective, which I think is important that one out of 10 restaurant businesses succeed, right? And so they, they look at that and their whole mission is, well, we can't, we, we have to make sure that widows and orphans, this is the, the language from the 1933 Securities Act, are protected from fraudulent people. And I, I understand that side too because, you know, we're all offering, we're building a marketplace and there's going to be solar developers on one side and there's going to be investors on the other. And it would be very bad for our business if a fraudulent solar developer got on the platform and offered, you know, bogus solar projects. So we have an underwriting group. We have, you know, technology that is able to sniff out fraudulent, you know, things, you know, usernames and things like that. We have all sorts of things on that side of the platform to protect. So I think even though there's all these, uh, there's all these boundaries that prevent people from investing in these local um, ideas and entrepreneurs, or, or not even local, but wherever they may be, there we need to find a middle ground between the regulators and what is inevitably going to happen, which is more of a crowdfunding model in the world. I think more of a of the the investment products that you talked about that still have the appropriate disclosures to investors that explain the risk, because not every everyday people aren't you know if they're if they're working. At, at their job, and they come home and they see an investment opportunity to invest in mixed greens or whatever it might be, they might not have all the information that they need to be able to actually make that decision. So from that perspective, I think um, there needs to be um, standardized um, methods of, of, of disclosure and things like that. At the same time, in the age of the internet, that stuff is very easy to share. You could and you have to, and you can and you can present that information. You don't need to be going through 20 different financial models and, and the market for someone to get all the information they think is adequate. Um, and just one more point on that is, is I think that we need, we need to look, look at, at, the, at the lens of what, you know, from, from our perspective that want to see more uh, opportunities to retail investors and more opportunities for entrepreneurs to access capital. We have to put ourselves in that perspective a little bit and how do we protect both of those groups? Because also from what you said, you don't want to manage a thousand investors. Right. You know, Mosaic for all the, uh, purpose driven on crowdfunding, we took, we've taken on venture capital because personally as a business, the investor relationship management side of our business is a lot of work. Is, uh, is, you know, these people provide tremendous strategic, um, advice and guidance. And I could see why a restaurant business actually would be a better business to have more investors because then you have better stakeholders in your business and your community around it. But there's a lot of entrepreneurs that don't want 20 investors putting in four million. They want two. They want a lead and a co-lead. And I think that's also important from the entrepreneur's perspective, how they can manage those expectations and those and that community of investors behind their business. So there has to be a lot of thinking that happens there, too. But I want to I add in here that there is incredible risk in the status quo. And what is so hypocritical about the security regulator's position is the belief that Wall Street investment as it is today is risk-free and lovely for our economy. And in point of fact, 
um, you know, there are investment advisors all over AM radio who are saying, you put your money long-term in the stock market, and you'll get, you know, 8, 10, 15, 20% per year, and every single one of them is lying. Yep. And they're lying because they're giving you returns that are compounded and in inflated dollars. And when you take inflation and the compounding out, the average rate of return of Wall Street for 140 years has been 2.6%. 2.6%. And in four of the last 10 years, the market has gone negative. So I want to hear regulators talk about the relative risks of investing in portfolios of Fortune 500 companies vis-a-vis the relative risks of diversified portfolios of all kinds of local restaurants, some of which succeed, some of which fail. Michael Schumann is author of Local Dollars, Local Sense. Other guests today at Climate One are Dan Rosen, founder and CEO of Solar Mosaic, and Andrew Swallow, founder of Mixed Greens. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Dan? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree couldn't agree more with you. If you read recently the article in, in Rolling Stones about Bank of America, and, and also there was an article about Chesapeake Energy, um, you know, there's, I just, it's incredible the things that have passed through the SEC and Moody's and Fitch's of the past. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually not incredible. It's illegal. And it's, it's unfortunate because people suffer. You know, people have lost their money. Pensions have lost their money when, you know, crooked, um, people sell them one thing on, on one hand and, and short them on the other. What I'll, I'll, what I'm saying is let's be better. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's be honest and transparent and, and uphold the standard of like militant transparency on our investment products and what we're offering on these platforms because people deserve the full disclosure of information. People deserve all the information that they have in order to make um, a, a decision. And this, this goes back to all the intermediaries. If that is done well and with a very high degree of standard, all those intermediaries, those wealth advisors and those people, you know, that are, are in between you and your money, they'll have to catch up or they will be, they will lose their business. And so I think that by being better than them and by upholding higher standards of how we evaluate, um, investment opportunities and disclose risk and our, our, as it is, our products are better. Investing in a restaurant, it, you know, if, I think Kickstarter is actually a really important, um, Kickstarter is a really important company to look at. Kickstarter is a, a crowdfunding platform that doesn't offer any return. What they offer is you can have a stake in future products. Well, not future, you don't get, it's not a stake. It's a, basically, if someone's creating a new type of uh, a lamp, you can get, you can win a lamp if you are one of the funders in the project. It's a marketplace for future ideas. It's a wonderful platform and beautifully coded. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just an incredible website. They moved $150 million through their platform last year, more than the National Endowment of the Arts for creative projects. People are willing and want to fund projects of their friends and family, get them their seed money without actually having a stake in their business because they just want to, it, this, the impact of investing and creating something is so powerful. Uh, John Lilly, who's a partner at, at Greylock, um, which is, you know, one of the preeminent venture capital firms in, 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 in this area said, you know, the best kind of applications are the applications, the best kind of companies are the ones that give you superpowers. You know, Kickstarter has given every person in this room the ability to be a foundation, to be a national endowment of the arts, to be a recording studio to back these ideas. It's an incredible superpower that all of us have now that we can back the next big artist, that we can back a really cool donut stand in Oakland. And I think that experience is really important too that you know we did customer feedback yesterday with a bunch of our customers and a lot of them were like, I care less about the return than I do the fact that I'm creating a solar power plant on someone else's roof. That's really cool to me. That's what I want. And we're like, well, it's going to get you 8%. They're like, yeah, but... We, I want to create a solar power plant on someone else's roof. That's really awesome. And so I think we, we need to also look at the other benefits that come from not just the financial returns, but the community that is built around these things, the kind of um, superpowers that it gives people, and also this, this feeling of I'm, I'm powerful, that I, that I matter, that I, that I can really change the world. And I think that's the, the, what we're talking about. And so I agree with you 100%. But let's, 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 let's beat them at their own game. Let's beat them and, and do better. 
Michael Schumann, you write about an uh, organization, a company called Mission Markets in, in your book that was founded by a Wall Street veteran that's focused on accredited investors and is a capital source for sustainable agriculture. Tell us about Mission Markets. Well, Mission Markets is one of a number of companies that are creating, you know, Internet platforms to make it easier for people to buy unusual kinds of securities. So an unusual security might be an ownership stake in a community development bank, or it might be a new markets tax credit, or it might be water rights, or it might be energy conservation, or it might be uh, a carbon credit. And uh, But Mission Markets also has been very interested in creating local stock markets. Um, and they have a platform... When you look at the platform, it actually looks more like eBay than E-Trade. That is, someone you know puts up a sh- bunch of shares of something, and it may sit there for a couple of weeks before someone buys it. Uh, which, you know, from one standpoint, from the standpoint of those who enjoy the nanosecond trading atmosphere of Wall Street today, they're very disappointed. Not a very liquid market. But, yeah. but you know, what it does is it, you know, moves away all the speculation so people are making long-term investments. And this is probably a good goal for those of us who are trying to build real economies in our communities. So Mission Markets has invited communities and states to set up dedicated portals to their site uh, so that, for example, if you wanted to create a San Francisco stock exchange, there is a way with mission markets you could put that together right now. Now, no one has actually uh, taken them up on it, but it is worth saying that last year the state of Hawaii, the state legislature, passed a bill asking um, their economic development authorities to create a stock exchange. So they're now talking with mission markets about doing this. And I should also mention that there's some other proprietors out there. In uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there's a wonderful finance professor from Franklin and Marshall School um, named, what a great name, Trexler Profit. And Trexler Profit <laughs> is designing his own stock exchange, which he's trying to get the Pennsylvania state regulators to give permission for. And frankly, local stock exchanges may be nothing more in the near future than a bulletin board on the web side-by-side with a broker-dealer with a name and address that you call to do a transaction that you want. So I think, I mean, again, we're at the precipice of a huge new kind of financial market. Uh, Paul Hawken, the noted author, was here recently uh, talking about blessed unrest, and he said if you, uh, socially responsible investing, he said, most people think about equity, but if you really want, want to have an impact, and per, partly based on what you said about equity returns over the last hundred years, you really ought to think about debt and lending your money. So we, would you agree? I'd like to get your thoughts, and Dan possibly also, as well as Andrew. Yeah, I, I, I'm of mixed minds. I mean, I think for startup companies, um, debt is probably essential, especially for unproven entrepreneurs that, that probably they need to owe something to somebody and work very hungrily to get from here to there. But once you've established yourself and you need bigger chunks of money, I think that um, looking for equity that doesn't sell your soul um, is is plausible. And, uh, for example, I mean, I know some people out there who set up restaurants and, and they – you know, they, they have put their house on the line to get the first couple of hundred thousand dollars, and they make the pact in their marriage, I will never do this again. Then five, <laughs> ten years later, it's like, well, we want to set up another restaurant. Do we go back and do another, even an SBA-insured loan and put your house on the lo- line? Well, do I lose my marriage or do I stop my business? That's a terrible, terrible choice. And I, I would hope that some people have the equity option available. Andrew, uh, I, I didn't put up my house. You know, it uh, again. It, it's just it's really it's interesting because the industry that I'm in is uh, is so important to the world and to people because we're pr- producing food. You know, we're not the farmers, but we're feeding the San Francisco public. And you know, you would think that it would be easier to 
to gain capital um, from uh, investors or banks, but it's really it really is not. Um, and like you said, you know, there's there's some television shows right now that you know are on. There's a lot of you know, food has become so popular in the last 20 years to people. There's all these celebrity chefs and all these television shows, and I'm sure a lot of you might like to watch them. But there's some that, you know, there's a restaurant. There's this one where this guy comes in, and these restaurants are failing. And they're these ma-and-pa restaurants, and all, you know, they're all over the country. And these these people have put their houses up. They've put every last dollar into, uh, you know, uh, the restaurants, and they were the people that shouldn't have gotten into the restaurant business because they've always had this passion. But people don't understand operating a restaurant is really difficult, and that's why there's so many failures. And so this guy is going around, and he's basically trying to turn these restaurants around for these families don't lose lose all their capital, you know. And so you know when people come to me and say, "Well, Drew, I want to start a restaurant," and the first thing I say to them is, "I why." <laughs> Why? I, I, you know, that's great that you want to start a restaurant, but why do you want to get into the restaurant industry? I know you are passionate about food, and I know that you're passionate about, you know, you know, something in the restaurant industry for you to get into our crazy business. But please, let's let's talk about this. You know, that's like me saying um, to my my sister, to my brother-in-law, you know, what, I'm going to start an internet startup. Can I can I do that? No, it's not it's not my forte. So. People, you know, don't understand that it's really difficult to open a restaurant. It's really difficult to to maintain profits because restaurants are so finicky, and uh, you know, you have problems with wait staff, and that's why I don't have wait staff in my restaurants. I decided to to get rid of that headache. But then the prices fluctuate, so you have all these, you know, local markets and all these wonderful products that we source all our food from, and you I'll create something that costs ten dollars. And then all of a sudden, the spike in the you know agriculture of where the lettuce is being harvested from just jumps, or chicken jumps. And then I'm looking at my margins, going, oh my gosh, this is costing me fifty you know fifty percent food cost. But then you know the the public wants me to still be charging nine dollars. And so it's a very difficult thing that we you have to balance with the restaurant industry. So. If anybody ever wants to get into it, really talk them down. That's my suggestion, <laughs> unless they've spent a lot of time and really understand it. And I think that a, a lot of restaurants don't succeed because there's usually a chef. I'm a chef by trade. I'm not a business person. I've become a business person over time and, and learning. My, my, my business partner, David Silverglide, is an MBA. He understands business. So a lot of restaurant tours and a lot of chefs don't have the knowledge and understanding of finance. And so that's an, that's one of the biggest problems that restaurants have is and I'm lucky that I have my brother David to help me with that and that's why we've been so successful. So it's 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 just a very tricky business and it's unfortunate people don't want to give capital to us, you know, but I think it's going to change and and I'm very optimistic and I think once split bread opens and People are excited about split bread um, that people will come to me for investment. But. Andrew Swallows, founder of Mixed Greens, our other guest today at Climate One, are Michael Schumann, author of Local Dollars, Local Cents, and Dan Rosen, founder and CEO of Solar Mosaic. I'm Greg Dalton. I worked in restaurants a lot growing up as a kid, starting as a dishwasher, busboy, waiter. Loved it, but I'd never want to be in the restaurant business again. I'm glad there are people uh, who, who do. Andrew, one of the themes of today is local sourcing. Let's talk a little bit about local sourcing sure. and investor trust and consumer trust. You know, how much of your stuff you get locally versus, well, something that might be further away that costs a little more? Is it always organic? Because I know right. you think there's so, a lot of... Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the way we kind of built the mission for, for mixed screens and... Uh, for what we've done with mixed greens was to, to source local products. Um, it was a really interesting process because when we started the the process of opening mixed greens, you know, I worked in some of the best restaurants, the high-end restaurants in San Francisco, and so I knew all these boutique farms. And I was like, these are the farms that I want to use. I want to support these guys. I want them to grow with us. And so I started to talk to them. And unfortunately, a lot of the small farmers are farmers. They're not business people, and they can't supply our demand. But then there are farmers in the area that we use. I mean, 
one of one of my biggest passions is to work with the local farms. I mean, we have big maps that make screens where you can see where all your food is coming from. You know, within 150 miles is kind of what we really try to, to set it for. The restaurants in L.A. are the same way. We have a map in L.A. that shows you where all the local products are. And the demand on local products is just skyrocketed. I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the ferry terminal down in San Francisco and the farmer's markets. I moved to California 11 years ago to really get into the, the local pro, uh, the, the farm-to-table movement. Alice Waters inspired me at Gramercy Tavern when I was very young, at 20 years old, to kind of come out here and be a part of that. Um, and so it, I think that over the last 10 years, I've seen just such a demand that to support the local agriculture. And I think it's just so wonderful to see. I mean, you see so many farmer's markets in San Francisco. You drive down, you know, Larkin Street, there's one down over by the city center. There's the ferry terminals. I mean, they're in all the different neighborhoods all throughout, you know, San Francisco. And that is just something that has been coming on for the last, you know, six years. I mean, and I think that the demand of what the public wants, they want to support their local people. And that's kind of what my mission is, is with Mixed Greens. And with Split Bread, my new concept that's going to be opening in July, I'm going to do something that no other restaurant that I have found in the United States is doing. I'm doing a fast food restaurant that's 100% seasonal. And, I, and I'm going to stamp my mark on it. I, I wanted to do it with Mixed Greens, but you know, it was really difficult because the American public really likes tomatoes all year round. And I explained to them... No, you really shouldn't eat tomatoes all year round. And I kind of, you know, don't want to be preachy and talk about this. I talked a lot about it in my, in my cookbook. Um, but I want people to eat food when it's at their peak and when it's in their backyard. You know, it tastes the best. It, 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 it will give you such an enjoyment. I always call it Christmas. So, you know, my, my wife in the audience, when we first started dating, would have tomatoes around. And I'm like, you can't eat tomatoes right now. We only are eating tomatoes in this family from July to September in California. <laughs> and she had a really hard time with that. She's like, why? I love tomatoes. And I'm like, so do I. But let's go get one and you tell me if that tastes like a tomato. So, you know, I, I said to her, and she goes, okay. You know, and then she, I saw one tomato in the, in the house like two weeks later and I looked at her and I go, really? And so... <laughs> The, the whole point was, is if you really wait to the seasons, if you wait to the seasons come and you don't indulge yourself on eating stuff that's coming from Mexico or from Asia or from South America, you're going to have a, a, it's like a treat. When a tomato's in season and you bite into that tomato for the first time in, the, in that year, you're like, oh my God. You know, and then you eat tomatoes for four months and then you don't want another tomato again. Right, but then the apples come into season. So there's always these wonderful products that are available to you, and you should eat them when they're in season. So with split bread, I am going to do 100% seasonal, and I'm really excited about this because it's really educating the the general public about when you should be eating, how much you should be eating, and when you're eating these local products. And these farms are so passionate locally about growing all these beautiful products. I mean, if you go to the farmer's markets and see the farmers and the passion they have for the products that they're creating for you is astonishing. And I, I feel very lucky to be living here because we have such amazing product. And, you know, there's not um, – we get spoiled living in California. And a, a lot of restaurants say we use seasonal, organic, yeah. whenever possible. That is, that is the worst slogan ever. Why? I mean, why would you put something we use seasonal, organic, local product when available? They're always available. <laughs> They're always available. It just decides if you want to pay for them. And that's the thing that we have fought for mixed greens, where my food costs, uh, an average restaurant, depending on, you know, if they're selling liquor or wine, runs a good food cost about 25 to 27%, where my food cost is close to 35%, and that's because I'm using organic product. And I don't have anywhere on my menus when this is available and all this kind of stuff because that's, that's, I don't believe in that. I'm actually going to give you the product that I'm saying I'm giving you. And they don't even question me about what I'm giving them because they believe in what we're doing and they know that, you know, we're giving them these products. So it's, support your local. That's, that's what I always said, you know, is 
this is our village. You know, we were, you know, a long time ago, these were villages and, and people used to go to their neighbor's house. This guy was baking bread or this guy was a fish guy and this guy used to have cows and you, you would share the products and you can see that with all the boutique products that are coming to the market. I mean, I keep going back to the ferry terminal because they really, you know, really pushed that and it really brought that to to the the public and all the tourists that come into our wonderful city every year. Um, But, you know, it's it's support your locals. Andrew Swallows, founder of Mixed Greens. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about local economies at Climate One. We're going to put our uh, microphone right here and invite your participation, uh, invite you to come... Join the conversation with one one part question or comment. I'm here to uh, help you keep that brief. If you're on this side of the house, we invite you to please go through that back door, and the line will start uh, over there with Jane Ann, our producer. And uh, until we get that situated, we, uh, we invite you to come up and join the conversation. Um, Michael Schumann, you write about Swanton Berry Farms in your book, which is an example of the first, I think, with the first organic and unionized uh, farm in uh, in Central California. Tell us a little bit about that, how it fits into the themes we're talking about today. Well, Swanton Berry Farm is, uh, I think, stands for the proposition that that efficiency is not the only thing we're looking for in our economy. That uh, that. There is quality, too, and quality goes to the quality of the product, and quality goes to the quality of the workplace. Um, and Jim Cochran took the position that by not just being a strawberry farmer, but actually delivering, you know, the most delicious, most environmentally sensitive strawberries that were not, you know, in, not inundated with pesticides, and by treating his workforce well, and not just well, not just allowing a union to come in, but actually going out there to bring the union in, knowing that his workers will be in a better position um, to be represented by by the manager going out and bringing the union in. I, I think he really demonstrated a fundamentally different approach to business. And so, people who buy Swantonberry products. Um, they, they, they are dedicated to his vision. And they so pay more. They pay, they pay more, you know, not a lot more, but they pay somewhat more. But it is that vision of quality, that vision of the triple bottom line coming, coming to our community that really has driven that. And I think more and more businesses are embracing that. More and more businesses are understanding that there's no such thing as a product that is um, one, you know, that that is totally homogeneous. That is, that every product has many, many characteristics, and linking those products to the consumers so that you know, not not you know, they're they're, they're tied to the consumers' specific tastes. They're tied to the consumers' values. They are part of the consumers' vision of the world that that consumer wants that that's part of how we achieve economic success these days. Let's have our first audience question. All right. Hi, my name is Tia Ferguson, and this question is mostly for Michael and Dan to an extent, and it's regarding the Senate bill that just passed. Um, there, for I'm in school, and one of our assignments is to comment on some sort of legislative action in, in a capital market of our choice, and my team is working on this crowdfunding legislation, and um, in reviewing the bill, it wasn't totally clear to us whether uh, investing in funds, crowdfunded funds, would be legal, um, what the secondary markets are for those uh, securities, and also whether there would be an intra-local exemption. So for companies that may be like a local restaurant that doesn't necessarily have the Internet savvy or its customers might not have the Internet savvy to utilize a, an inter, intermediary platform if they could just invest directly in those companies. So I, maybe could right. you speak a little bit more about Well, so you clearly have done a very good job studying this bill because you're asking very technical questions. Um, and, and the truth is, is that for, for both the audience here today and audiences who will be listening to this broadcast in the coming months, we won't know the answer to this until it kind of goes back for final Deliberate. The House is going to vote on this, and there will be a final deliberation. But 
I would say, my understanding is right now is that the crowdfunding bill only applies to initial securities offerings. It is not applying to um, funds, although, you know, one can imagine certain kind. if you took certain kinds of things like business development companies and took them public, you could crowdfund a business development company. And that would be another interesting home run for local business. And it also doesn't really deal with the secondary trading piece. Um, I think, though, a lot of states will start to be creative with both of those pieces, both the investment funds and the secondary trading aspects. And I think there's going to be increasing pressure now on the Securities and Exchange Commission to give permission to the states to begin to experiment. Dan, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that the for platforms, the, the question regarding secondary trading, I think, is a, is a really important one. You know, Lending Club and Prosper, which are peer-to-peer consumer uh, lending platforms where you can borrow money kind of wallet-to-wallet right through Lending Club, um, are just starting to get that secondary market on there where institutional investors are placing bets across, you know, 10,000 loans on the platform. Together, Prosper and Lending Club are going to do a billion dollars or so this year, uh, you know, you know, together, and they're growing at about 100% a year. They're just starting to get those institutions um, investing on those platforms. A lot of those are, you know, institutional investment funds. Um, there are also conversations with broker-dealers happening where broker-dealers could be maybe trading a lending club loan or a security. I think those are in the beginning stages. So I think what's going to happen in sort of the mission markets um, reference earlier is there will be these more alternative trading platforms that will come up, sort of like secondary market. There was all sorts of stuff with Facebook related to that where Facebook stocks were trading, you know, within this market. There are all sorts of of those types of companies that are going to start sprouting up. And I think, uh, you know, I think what the rulings over the next nine months with the SEC will determine what the classification of those organizations have to be, whether, you know, looks like it's going to be a broker-dealer depending on you know, from what the Senate added in. Um, but, you know, we're going to see over the next nine months um, how the SEC makes comments, and we're still in that kind of process. So, But overwhelmingly, it looks like it was a big win for crowdfunding yesterday. I mean, it really is a step in a positive direction, and I think it will create a lot of jobs in America, and it'll, it could unleash a lot of entrepreneurial talent. Um, so, you know, we're, I think, from the kind of, from all perspectives, pretty excited about the Progress. See, we said this would be upbeat today. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Hi, I'm Greg Feeler. Um, I really like everything that's being said here, but you didn't say slow money or slow food. There's also impact investing. There's a lot of stuff going on. So comment on how we bring it all together and you know, how we can really make progress. Well, for me, um, One great way of bringing it together is to educate the American public on a secret weapon that we have at our disposal to do local investment today with tax-deferred money, and it's called the self-directed IRA. It's so secret that a dummies book has been written about it. Um, But it turns out that, you know, you can roll over. I mean, we all have rules about our IRAs and 401Ks, so you have to look at your rules. But if you roll over that tax-deferred money into a self-directed IRA and you shop around carefully, you can find a custodian who will probably do your investing for one or $200 a year, and you can put that money in anything. You can put that money into your co-op. You can put that money into bank CDs that are being lent to small business. You can put that money into your stock investment club. You brought up slow money. Slow money is a bunch of investment clubs around the United States, three of which have created little funds. But slow money is all about getting 1% of our investment into local food businesses. You could put your money in real estate projects. The only thing you can't put your self-directed IRA money into is your own house. But you can put money in your neighbor's house, and your neighbor can put money into your house. 
So there's just this huge universe of creative investing that we can do with our IRAs. And I think once we focus on practically, what am I going to do with my money? A lot of these other questions will begin to assemble themselves. Dan Rosen, you want to add to that? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a great response. I'll take another route on it, too, though, that, you know, I think uh, related to what Paul Hawken, you mentioned Paul Hawken, he mentioned earlier, he's he's an advisor to Mosaic. I think his approach is really beautiful, which is what we're seeing is there's this blessed unrest. You know, there's just a thousand paths to making the world. You know, a lot of us have this vision for the world that we see that, you know, the farmer's market, more 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 entrepreneurs raising access to money, more 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 justice, more equity in the world. I think a lot of people have that vision, and there's just a lot of ways to go about it. And I think, you know, addressing slow money or crowdfunding, I think they all need to happen. They all need to be successful, and it's all. That's why actually, kind of the name mosaic is like all these little pieces that make up a whole. You know. There's just so many solutions that we need to 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 make successful and to to come to life at this stage because there's just so many problems that I think that um, all of them really need to happen. So I think slow money is a is a beautiful movement, um, and I think what he was talking about is a beautiful solution. And just I think that the 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 if there is the like one response says. Just make it happen. You know, we need, whatever you're working on is the most important thing in the world. This is the most important time, and you need to make it successful. And so I think, uh, you know, Mosaic is looking at this problem from one side of the equation, and we're looking at it, you know, over here, and another guy is looking at it over here. I don't view that person as competition. We see it as a co-opetition, as a potential movement for us to join forces and, and solve the, the problem. So I think we're in this age of collaboration, the age of networks, and um, they all have to. They all have to move forward. Dan Rosen is founder and CEO of Solar Mosaic. Other guests at Climate One today are Michael Schumann, author of Local Dollars, Local Cents, and Andrew Swaller, founder of Mixed Greens. I'm Greg Dalton. We're getting close to the end here, but let's ask each of you: What specifically do you do with your own money? How do you invest it? What are you doing right now? There's this broad range of choices. Um, Michael, you end your book by saying you haven't invested wisely. Uh, previously, and uh, so since you kind of came clean in the end of your book, we can start with you. Good. Um, so I am your classic American snookered investor. Um, I put money into my house. I put money into my IRA. I got divorced in 2008, which was a perfect storm, and lost everything. Um, and what I am doing right now is what I recommend most Americans focus on with their money, which is create a little fund in my own bank. I call it Bank of Michael. And my little Bank of Michael is to avoid the use of credit cards. And so by avoiding the use of credit cards, I am getting something between a 20 to 30% rate of return on my money. And I would suggest that every individual try to create some slush fund of cash to absolutely avoid the use of credit cards. The next stage that I'm going to do is, is, you know, put a down payment on another house. Hopefully it will coincide when my ex-spouse parts with uh, my half of the equity, and then I can start all over again on that phase of building up my assets. So, and by not using credit cards, you mean carrying a balance month to month. You that's might right. Use, use yeah. them, pay them off in the month. That's okay, but I would don't try to avoid balance. the credit cards completely. I'd use debit cards, use cash, use other other tools. Dan Rosen. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, um, you know, there's the phase of reality. I think we're kind of moving out of it now because we're just backed by venture capitalists. Where everything that I've had, I've put all my, 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 you know, chips on the table and said, I think it's gonna, you know, I want to put it into mosaic. I think it's also important, you know, to have done that because it shows the other investors that are putting money in mosaic that this guy believes in it and, and, you know, the other founders did too. So, you know, I think, um, you know, back to this like investment experience thing, there really aren't that many financial products in the world that I'm overwhelmingly 
excited about besides Mosaic, which I think will have the biggest return on investment if, I, if, we, if we play, you know, if everything goes uh, according to plan. Things often don't. At the same time, I, you know, selfishly, have, I think we've created Mosaic often. Often we create our companies to, to scratch our own itch, and that's the greatest kind of company in the world. Yeah. You know, you want to eat, you want to eat seasonally, so yeah. you're scratching your own itch. I want to invest in solar power plants across the world on rooftops and schools and places. That's where I want to put my money. I want to bank on the sun. I want it to go to solar panels. I want to solve climate change. Um, and so, and how, you know, how many uh, how many dollars in projects do you have so far? We've done about 400 grand in, in projects, about three solar power plants. Um, three of them are in Oakland. You can go and touch and feel them. That's what I want to do with my money. I want to be able to touch and feel. Um, but you know, I, so I'm really excited. I want to be like a solar baron on Mosaic, where I have like 20 solar power plants or like 100 solar power plants in my portfolio, and you know, I can join his network, and together we have 150 and. We're, you know, we're, we're naming them. Mine would be like the Rosen Group, and you know, I would have like my little solar power plants and be able to see my panels. So, I, I mean, we've created it very much selfishly to scratch an itch, which is, I, you know, I, I rent my home. I can't go solar on my home right now. Um, so, I can go solar on someone else's home through through our platform. And um, you know, I think that's a very deep seated desire. You know, all the founders of Mosaic really couldn't. There's shade blocking their roof. There's all these reasons. So, I think. Um, you know, we create a mosaic in many ways to solve that, solve that itch, to scratch that itch, to solve that problem. And I plan on putting a lot of money. I also, you know, fun Kickstarter projects. I, I'm kind of addicted to it. I, I think it's really cool. Like, I get to be like a, you know, a publishing house and support my friend's book. And I think it's, I think it's great. Um, so, I, uh, and I, and I think Kiva is a fantastic platform. Um, I think it's really special what they've done, um, creating a community around microfinance and. How many people they've gotten out of poverty? I think it's tremendous, and uh, I'm, I'm a fellow at the Unreasonable Institute, um, which is uh, an incredible institute in, in, in Colorado, dedicated to in, impact entrepreneurs. And you know, if Mosaic is, is very successful one day, um, the way I would like to give back is to investing in you know other impact entrepreneurs because I really think that I'm a, I'm I'm kind of dogmatic. I think entrepreneurship is the way to solve the world's problems in many ways, and you know, entrepreneurs just tackling themselves and throwing their passion at an issue is what's going to solve those problems. And I think investing in them, like yourself, you know, instead of trying to, you know, fund something or uh, some policy initiative, I would rather fund fund Andrew because he's going to um, help support local farmers. I would rather do that than fund a, a local farmers bill because I think you're going to do a better job of it and create a market and, and give a meaningful experience to people. So I'd probably invest in entrepreneurs if I could. Andrew Swallow, you've got a perfect name yeah, for, an, so, uh, for a <laughs> restaurant guy. Rest, so. Restaurant guy, yes, yes. Um, so you know, I I think that you both kind of said it. I mean, I'm currently buying a house in Bolinas, so I'm investing some money in Bolinas in the community there. Um, and you can then, have a farm there, a little bit uh, of a garden. You know, we're gonna have a garden, yes. You know, I've lived in the city for a long time, and I'm very looking forward to having my own garden, um, which uh, will happen soon. Um, so, you know, I, I, we're putting some money into the house, but most of the money that, you know, I have is I've reinvested it. I put it into mixed greens um, to grow the company, um, and I rent in San Francisco as well. Um, and uh, now I'm putting my money into split bread. So um, I believe in if you have a vision and you're passionate and you really believe what you're doing, you can be successful. So I say, am I going to invest in somebody else, or am I going to invest in something that I'm controlling and doing? Um, so I'm going to bank on myself. So I invest most of my money in, into my products that, you know, my restaurants that I'm working on. Um, and, you know, a lot of my friends are entrepreneurs, and we have conversations about investment. And we, we there's all these laws that are unfortunate because we've all, all said that we would just like to have a pool of all these different companies that we all have found and that we would just trade stock and put it into a fund so you can basically invest in your friends as one company is successful. But there's too many legalities around that, unfortunately. But, I mean, like you said, I think the best thing to do is to support local entrepreneurs um, because you, it is something that you can you can feel and touch. You can see the growth. You can be a part of it. 
um, you know, investing in something that you never see or get any information about. It might get you a good return. But at the end of the day, if you're investing in something that's in your local community um, and you can watch it grow, it's going to give you, it's going to make you feel a lot better about your investment. So um, I, those are the kind of investments I do. And I hope as my companies grow and, you know, that I can actually start this restaurant fund and so I can invest in, in, in young restaurateurs that have visions and, and want to, you know, achieve certain goals. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, I'm a total serial entrepreneur and I, I just love talking to people that want to create things and, and, and solve solutions and, and make things better for, for people. So. We have to end it there. Our conversation with three uh, people who invest where their heart is. Our thanks to uh, Andrew Swallow, founder of Mixed Greens, Michael Schumann, author of Local Dollars, Local Cents, and Dan Rosen, founder and CEO of Solar Mosaic. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for listening and coming to Climate One today.